We're going to be in John chapter 8 today, <clears throat> John chapter 7 and 8. If you've got your house Bibles, I see Daisy back there, wonderful Miss Daisy, handing out Bibles. If you need a Bible, go ahead and raise your hand, and she will drop one off to you. I see Travis over here. we got a few hands raised. Daisy back there in the corner as well. Page 893 is where we'll begin, and let me pray as we dig into Jesus' I Am statement for the day. Heavenly Father, what a true delight to be gathered together as your church family. God, this is that space where the Holy Spirit does all this crazy work inside of our hearts and makes us more like Christ. And so, God, we come into this place with an appropriate sense of fear and joy. Fear because we know that we're going to leave here changed. That's what we ultimately desire, though. But change always hurts. And so, God, I pray, God, I pray that you would have your way with us today. God, as much as you move through singing so communally like that, just anthems to our God, would you now move through your word? God, would you take anything out of my mouth that's not meant to be said today, but what is of you, what's underneath your authority, would it come out of your preacher's mouth, and would it actually be effective to do its work? So God, change us today, we pray. In Jesus' holy name, amen. Last summer... My family and I took a trip to Lake of the Ozarks. Anyone been to Lake of the Ozarks? Got a handful around the room. About the same as the 9 a.m. Lake of the Ozarks is great, and it's not too far. You guys should go. It's a good trip. Uh, on one of the days, my family decided to do something we had never done before. We explored a cave. Now, I'd never been caving. I've seen caves, but I've never been uh, courageous enough to go into them on my own. Uh, but this was actually a tour we went on. And so on this particular cave trip... Uh, there were about 20 people in the group, and we rounded up, and she started taking us through this cave system in Lake of the Ozarks, and I didn't realize how deep caves go. Caves go way down below the ground, and it got cold. I'm glad we brought coach with us on that day. We had our whole family with us. It was me and my wife and our three kids, and as we're going through this cave, eventually you get to the, kind of the deepest part of the cave, and it's this big open cavern, and the tour guide says, all right, now circle up around the cavern. And so I kind of know where this is going already because I've heard people tell stories about going on cave trips. But you, we, we circle up around this cavern, and I have my three little kids' hands in my hand, right? And I'm just holding them tightly because I know what's about to happen. She says, okay, here's what we're going to do. We're going to turn the lights off. So one at a time, we all turn our little lanterns off that we had. And she's the last one. And when she turns her light lamp off, utter darkness. Utter darkness. Now, I don't know if you've ever been in utter darkness before. We've all been in darkness, a lot of darkness, but utter darkness is a whole other thing. Utter darkness so much so that you couldn't see your, your hand if you waved it in front of you. Utter darkness so heavy in darkness, you could have scratched your way around in that cave for a thousand years and you wouldn't have found your way out. It was so dark, you wouldn't be able to even take a step without un really having any context to where you were. And then after about 30 seconds or so, she turned her light on just ever so dimly, the tour guide did. And just that little bit of light shining in that utter darkness lit up the whole room. All of a sudden, you could see where you were going. All of a sudden, I could see the, the entryway where we came in and the exit where we were about to go. I, I could make sure my kids were still there and they hadn't fallen into some pit that I couldn't see, right? Like, like I could actually see what was happening. Just a little bit of light reveals everything, doesn't it? Now, I don't want to extend this metaphor too far, but do you ever feel like you're in that cave? You know, I think there are seasons in life where you're just kind of in a dark season. It, you're trying to figure out, where do I go? 
and, and you're looking for verification, you're looking for some kind of understanding, you're looking for light to kind of shine away and say, this is what you're supposed to go and where you're supposed to do. But sometimes, doesn't it just feel like you're in total, utter darkness? Like you could just stay in the same spot, clawing your way around in this darkness, thinking things over a thousand times over, and you never find your way out. I know for me, I've had those seasons. Where should I go? What should I do? How do I move forward? How do I get myself into this situation? Darkness settles in. We're going through this series today for the next six weeks. We're on our second week. It's the I Am series. We're looking at the I Am statements of God. And today's statement, Jesus says, I am the light of the world. I'm the light of the world. Whoever follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. And I think at a very surface level, we can grasp this. It's almost simple enough for a child to grasp, isn't it? We kind of get the, the sense of where he was going with that statement. But I want to show you today that there is so much more depth behind these words that we would never understand if we didn't take the time to dig into God's word and really understand what he means by this statement. And I love this series at a bigger level because, you know, we can talk about Jesus all day long. We can talk about what we think about him and what we, what we, what the things he did. But to sit down and look at Jesus' actual statements about himself, who did he say he was? What did he claim about himself and what power and authority he had in our lives? That's a whole different thing. This series gets us right into the very words of Jesus. Now, before we go too far in our passage today, we're going to be jumping from chapter 7 to chapter 8. And there's something that happens in the text right in, the, in between those two sections, between chapter 7 and 8, and I want to deal with it right up front. So I'm taking a bit of a side right now so that I don't lose you halfway through the sermon today. If you look on your house Bibles, and probably on all your Bibles, right above chapter 8, there's a big footnote. I'm going to read what mine says. It says, the earliest manuscripts do not include 753 through 811. Okay, now let me explain what that means so that I don't lose you halfway through the sermon, right? All that means is this. When the original copy of the Bible was written, we don't have that original copy anymore. But what we have is copies of that original copy, and then we've got copies of those and copies of those. And, and a few weeks ago, we preached a whole sermon on how many copies and how verifiable what, what was in the original copy is based on all the copies we have. Well, when you go down to those original few copies that we have, the earliest ones, we don't see this story of the woman caught in adultery actually in those copies. Now, that doesn't mean it wasn't in the very original. Maybe the earliest copies just for some reason didn't include it. We don't know what could have happened. But what seems the case is that a later scribe then added that story in, and then it began getting copied out. Because of that, what we do is the scholars who put the Bible together for us look at that and say, here's what we're going to do. Let's include the story because we're not entirely sure if it was in the original or not, and let's just put a big footnote so everybody knows there's a bit of a question mark over that passage. Now, that in no way discredits the entirety of the New Testament. There's only two passages in the whole New Testament that that has to do, that's the case with. It's this passage right here, chapters 8, 1 through 12, which we're not going to deal with today, and it's the end of the Gospel of Mark. Those two passages are the only ones that are in that situation. The whole rest of the Bible is very verifiable under scientific criticism like that. Those are the two passages, and scholars have chosen to deal with it by giving you a big footnote. Got it? Okay. Follow up with me if you have any questions on that. I want, I want to make sure you feel confident in that. But we've covered it. Okay, let's get back into the text for the day. In order to understand Jesus' statement that he says, I am the light of the world, we've got to get a bit of context. So jump with me back to chapter 7, and let's start in verse 37. It says this, On the last day of the feast, the great day, 
Jesus stood up and he cried out, If anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. Whoever believes in me, as Scripture has said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. Now, I'm starting in this part. It's a different statement Jesus made, but it's the beginning and it's the setup for what Jesus is about to say. The, the writer John begins by telling us it was the last day of the feast, the great day. Now, what is he talking about? That's our setting. Setting is so important. The feast that was being celebrated is the Feast of Tabernacles. Now, we're told that at the beginning of chapter 7. Now, that makes all the difference in the world. The Feast of Tabernacles was one of three great feasts that the Jewish people in Jesus' day would have celebrated. Three times a year, everyone would have made this big pilgrimage to Jerusalem, and Jerusalem would have been packed with people. They would have been celebrating, and the reason it's called the Feast of Tabernacles is because at night, each family would have constructed a homemade tabernacle, kind of like a tent, a little dwelling for them to sleep in. And they would have placed these on top of their homes, along the streets. Those who couldn't have made it to Jerusalem for the trip would have done this on their homes throughout Israel. And at night, every family would leave their house and with all their kids sleep underneath the stars inside these tabernacles. And it was part of the celebration they did this for a whole week. I have a Jewish neighbor, an Orthodox Jewish neighbor, and at, the time, at this time of the year, every year, he constructs one of these tabernacles on top of his house, and their family stays outside in this tabernacle to celebrate this celebration. Now, what are they celebrating? This particular celebration celebrated their exodus out of Egypt. It was a connector for them to their heritage of what God had done in their life. You see, it, it pointed them backwards to that time when God had brought his people out of the land of Egypt, where they had been slaves, and he had he had provided for them all through the 40 years of wandering through the desert. And when they didn't know where they would go or where they would stay, God provided for them. And they had made these shelters at night and looked out under the stars. And every night they'd be thankful, God, we're in this desert. We're in the darkness. We don't know where to go, but you keep providing for us. God's people at the time of this story were in the middle of a celebration pointing back to that day. So for this whole week, they would have been laying under the stars saying, God, you... You just keep providing. You provided back then when we were in the darkness, and you keep providing, and we're connecting ourselves to that story now. Now, what would happen, at, at the end of the celebration, a, a, a ceremony developed over the years that was common in Jesus' day. What would happen was all the priests from the temple in Jerusalem would form a big, long procession line, and there were hundreds of them, and they'd each take a pitcher of water, and they go over to the pool of Siloam, which is a big body of water right outside the temple. And they dip their, their pitcher into the, into, the, into the water. Then they'd walk over, and one at a time, they'd stand in front of the temple at the altar, and they'd pour their water out, one after another. For hours they would do this. And this water would start as a little trickle, and then it would build into a little stream, and it would go all the way down, down out to where the people were, and it would form a pool down at the bottom, and all the people who were there for the celebration would gather along this stream as it was coming out from the temple, and they would look at this water coming out from the temple, and it would be part of their celebration and part of their devotion. Now, that was symbolic of two things for them. This stream was powerful because it reminded them of the Feast of Tabernacles, that while they were in the desert, when they didn't know where they were going to have water, that's how bad the desert years were. When they didn't know where water would come from, God had provided in a way that only God could provide. He had provided water from a rock. When there should be no water in the desert, they were provided for. It was a way of saying, God, you provided for us. But it also pointed them to Ezekiel. There's a prophecy in the book of Ezekiel 
where Ezekiel, a few hundred years before this moment with Jesus, wrote a prophecy about what would happen in the temple. And, and he, he's telling a vision that he has. And Ezekiel writes this in chapter 47 of his book. He says, Then he brought me, this, Ezekiel's being led by somebody through the temple, then he brought me back to the door of the temple. And behold, water was issuing from below the threshold of the temple toward the east, south of the altar. And behold, the water was trickling out on the south side. The man then led me through the water, and it was ankle deep. Then it was knee deep. Then it was waist deep. Then it was a river that I could not pass through, for the water had risen. It was deep enough to swim in, a river that could not be passed through. And he said to me, when the water flows into the sea, the water will become fresh. And wherever the river goes, every living creature that swarms will live. There was this prophecy that was written, that one day out of this temple, life would come to the nations. Water would flow out in such a way that wherever the water went, there would be healing for the nations. People's lives would be changed. Anyone who came in contact with that water, everything would be different. There would be healing in the name of that water. So every year, the priests poured this little trickle of water down and said, one day, one day, that healer is going to come. Jesus takes his spot right over the gathering water at the bottom. All the people gathered around he says, if anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. Whoever believes in me, as the scripture has said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. Now, now can you just imagine that moment for a second? Everyone understood what he was saying. Here's Jesus capturing the moment of that ceremony that they had been doing year in, year out, waiting for the fulfillment when that wouldn't just be a sign anymore, but it would be the reality that the healing would come to the nations. Jesus steps over it and says, it's me. It's me. That prophecy was about me. The, the Feast of Tabernacles, it's about me. It's all been about me. I'm here. I'm before you. I'm the one that's bringing healing to the nations. Can you imagine what was going through the crowd as they thought about those words from Jesus? Now, while that's happening, everything begins to escalate for Jesus from this point on in the Gospel of John. Everything. From this point on, all the authorities, everyone starts looking at Jesus and everything starts getting a little more dangerous for Jesus because he's made such a bold claim. But there was still another part of the ceremony that was yet to happen. The lighting of the candles, the lighting of the lights inside the temple. Now, if you can, put the picture up of the, the temple for me. Every night during the Feast of Tabernacles, and you can leave this up during this whole description, every night during the Feast of Tabernacles, they would go in and they would light these huge lights inside what was called the Court of the Women in the Temple. Now, to give you a picture of the Temple, it was a huge place. What was supposed to happen at the Temple was God was dwelling in such a way and God's people were in such cleanness and holiness with Him that when the nations came and gathered in the Court of the Gentiles, that was the outer Court of the Temple, they would come in contact with God. And be changed. And they go back and tell their nations about the God who lives in Israel. And then there was an inner court. This inner court of the women it was called. This is where the women were allowed to go. They couldn't go any further than this back in that day. And, and in chapter 8 verse 20. It says this. These words. After he says I am the light of the world. He says these words he spoke in the treasury. As he taught in the temple. 
Now this court of the women, that back wall is the treasury. Actually, what you can see, this is an artist's rendition of the temple. What you can see, if you see those kind of dark dots, those kind of dark buckets that are on the ground along the back wall in between each of the pillars, those were actually, actually tin receptacles. So if you think of the story in the Bible of the woman and her two mites, when she went and put her two mites in the receptacle, it was one of those along the back wall. And what would happen is when you put your money in, you would hear it clink real loud. Clink, clink, clink right? This was the treasury. Jesus is standing right here. And what would happen at night, those two big pillars, as you could see, were huge lights, and there were four of them in the temple. Two behind in each corner of the court of the, of the, court of the women. And at nighttime, they light these candles, and it was symbolic for them. Because when they were wandering in the desert, and they didn't know where to go, when it was like utter darkness, and they weren't sure, how would God provide? How did God lead them? By a pillar of fire. Every night, a pillar of fire. Just to remind them, I'm here, I'm present, I'm with you. I'm not going to leave you. I'm going to show you how to get through this dark place that you're in. Even though it took 40 years, keep in mind, every night a pillar of fire. And so they constructed these huge pillars. And notice how tall they are. They're tall enough that they extend beyond the court of the women so that the nations who are in the court of the Gentiles and all throughout Jerusalem could look in and see that light shining over the night sky in Jerusalem. And they'd ask, what do those lights mean? Well, let me tell you what they mean. They remind us of God's faithfulness in the wilderness. One ancient historian commenting about these lights when they got lit for this temple says, it was like a diamond in the, in the midst of the city of Jerusalem was the temple ground like floodlights. And then it was believed that what they would do is they would actually quote from Isaiah 42 when they lit this candle. And Isaiah 42 is a promise about the coming servant of the king, the coming servant of God. They quote from this. Isaiah 42 reads this, I am the Lord. I've called you in righteousness. I will take you by the hand and keep you. I will give you as a covenant for the people. This is talking about the Lord's servant. I will give you as a covenant for the people, a light for the nations, to open the eyes that are blind, to bring out the prisoners from the dungeon, from the prison, those who sit in darkness. Now, we don't know the exact moment, but at some point as they're lighting those candles and reciting Psalm 42, Jesus walks underneath those candles and he says this, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. See what Jesus is doing here? He's identifying himself as the very same God who led the Israelites through the wilderness in the before He's saying, that was me. It was me. I was in the pillar of fire. I was the one who said, I'll always be with you. And when you don't know where to go, I'll lead you through that darkness. It was me all along. All these signs that you have, it all points to me. I'm here now. I'm in the flesh. You need to look no further. One of the things I want you to see right now is how all of Scripture fits together. It's beautiful. That story of the Exodus was thousands of years prior. Over a thousand years prior. And yet, and yet, yeah, Jesus is tying it all together in this moment. See, every story throughout all the scripture points towards Jesus. It's all tied together by him. It all points towards what he was going to do. Now, that's a bold claim when Jesus says, I am the light of the world. And it's really interesting what they do next. This is what happens. Whenever Jesus makes a bold claim in scripture about who he is, about his nature and his ontology, all the authorities try to discredit him. They try to find a way. How could this, how can we discredit him? The problem was people were believing in Jesus because not only did he say these great things, but then he backed it up by powerful miracles. He was healing people. And so the people were like, well, 
I mean, what, what can we say against him? So the Pharisees, chapter 8, verse 13, right after he says this, what do they say? So the Pharisees said to him, If you are bearing witness about yourself, your testimony is not true. Meaning this, look, we can't go against his works, but, but in our law, you can't make a claim unless there's a testimony from one other person to back it up. So he's only got himself, so he got him. There's no one else who can give witness to what Jesus is saying about himself. Well, Jesus isn't going to play that game. Listen to how he, how he responds. Jesus answered, even if I do bear witness about myself, my testimony is true. For I know where I come from and where I'm going, but you don't know where I've come from or where I'm going. You judge according to the flesh. I judge no one. Yet even if I do judge, my judgment is true. For it is not I alone who judge, but I am the Father who sent me. In your law, it's written that the testimony of two people is true. I am the one who bears witness about myself, and the Father who sent me bears witness about me. They said to him, therefore, where is your father? Jesus answered, you don't know either me nor my father. If you knew me, you would know my father also. Notice what Jesus does to respond to their criticism. They're saying, your testimony can't be true. And he says, you don't know who you're speaking to. And he points towards the relationship he has with the Father. See, we know having the whole scripture that Jesus' relationship to the Father is that he is one with the Father. It's one God in three persons. He knows where he came from. He came from the Father's side and he knows where he's going. He's going back to the Father's side. When they see Jesus, they see the Father. But they couldn't believe it. And then Jesus has those haunting words when he says, you don't either, you don't, if you don't know me, then you don't know my Father. See, to not know Jesus is to miss the gift of life altogether. You don't get to God without Jesus. There is no other path. That's what Jesus is saying here. I am the light of the world. The problem is this is so hard for people to hear. It's hard for them to hear. They spend the next so many chapters of the book of John trying to find a way to kill Jesus because they can't deal with that. And it's hard for us today as well. You know, I... I uh, I bring up a guy, a guy I like listening to. His name is Jordan Peterson. And you've heard me talk about him a handful of times. And maybe you know Jordan Peterson a lot. Jordan Peterson is a well-known speaker, thinker. Um, what's, his, what's his credentials here? Let me read his job. He's a clinical psychologist and a professor of psychology at the University of Toronto. All right, this guy knows what's going on. He's a great speaker, and he, he speaks a lot into things of psychology, into spirituality, even into morality and how we should do life. And he's a huge fan of Jesus. If you listen to Jordan Peterson enough, he goes on all these debates and speaking things. If you listen to him, he talks about Jesus all the time. He has very high regards for Jesus. But I don't think Jordan Peterson sees Jesus in the same way that a follower of Christ would. I don't think Jordan Peterson sees Jesus as the resurrected king. I know that because of the story that he told. He was in an interview with William Lane Craig. William Lane Craig, a great defender of the Christian faith. And William Lane Craig asked Jordan Peterson, he said, Jordan, who do you think Jesus was? Jordan thinks for a second. He says, you know, I had a dream recently. He says, I was, uh, I was standing in a graveyard, and there were tombstones all around. And it was, as I looked at the tombstones, I realized there were tombstones of all these great heroes and conquerors from the past. There was, uh, you know, there was Alexander the Great, and then there was Caesar. You know, there was Napoleon. All these great heroes. And one at a time, they rose from the grave with their weapons, and they all looked at each other, and they realized there was this battleground, this, and they began to fight each other to the death to find out who was the greatest champion. And then all of a sudden, another figure appeared across the graveyard, 
And each of the old figures from the past looked up, and when they saw the figure across the graveyard, one at a time they dropped their weapons and fell down on their knees in worship before him. And Jordan says, I looked across the graveyard, and it was Jesus standing there. Okay, first of all, that's an epic dream. (laughs) I mean, I wish I had dreams like that. That's cool. Okay? Second of all, at this point, you got to be thinking, Jordan, how clear does he need to be? I mean, clearly, Jesus is revealing himself to you. Clearly, Jesus is king. Those great people who thought they were king, who thought they were God, they weren't. They bow before the true God. And Jesus is revealing himself to you, Peter or Jordan. Who, what do you say? Jordan Peterson says, so you know, I went to my old psychoanalysis textbooks. And uh, what I decided it means is that Jesus had qualities about him that were like pieces from all these other great figures from the past. He, you know, they all had it individually, but Jesus had this special combination of these individual traits that each of them had. And you want to just shake Jordan and say, Jordan, you are right on a lot of things, but you are wrong on Jesus. He does not just have qualities that all these other people have. He is the light of the world. He is the king that every other person bows down in worship before. Every knee will bow before Jesus. And you want to scratch your head at Jordan Peterson and say, Jordan, how could God be so clear with you? What else do you need to understand the clarity of who this person is we're speaking about? But the reality is we do the same thing all the time. And it's very easy to point the finger at Jordan Peterson and the Pharisees who were looking at Jesus and trying to discredit him with all the clarity of what he was doing. When we do the same thing, what else do we need? Right? Everything we need to live a life of godliness, a life of morality, a life of trying to make our way through this crazy, dark world that we live in. We live in a crazy society. I'm reading the book Brave New World right now about the future, a sci-fi book about how crazy the world's going to get. We're not far off from that insane view of the world that Aldous Huxley wrote about in his sci-fi novel Brave New World. We're actually approaching it. And we need we, everything we need to be able to live a life of godliness. He's revealed to us. He's given everything. See, that's part of what it means when Jesus says, I'm the light of the world, is that he reveals He shines truth down to us and he gives us what we need. He reveals the way we ought to go and how we ought to think and how we ought to love. He's given it all. You know, sometimes what we do, we we, we just take in what the culture is saying about things. We see society passing laws that are abominations to God. And you know what we do? We just kind of say, well, you know, if if it's legal, then I, I don't know, I'll just go with the flow. We lose our voice. We lose our voice. Everything we need has been given to us. He didn't leave us shortchanged. We're not wandering in the desert, scratching around in a cave, trying to say, I wonder how I find my way out of here, right? I I wonder if I dig hard enough, maybe I'll find somewhere. God's revealed light to us. He says, I I am the light. I have revealed to you how to live your life. You don't need to search. Search the scriptures and that tells you everything you need to know and then live as lights yourself because I placed the Holy Spirit inside of you not to hide it, not to put it under a bushel and just let it be hidden from everyone but to have boldness and courage to speak into a dark society. 
That's the church. And we point the finger at Jordan Peterson and we say, how could you miss it? I mean, how clear does he have to be? He gave you a vision. And then we blend in with society. We lose our voice. Just go with the flow. Stop having the strong convictions Jesus gave us. When Jesus says, I'm the light of the world, part of it is that he has revealed himself to us. And we need to sit under the revelation of God's light and say, God, 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 who am I supposed to be? You've, you've shown me and you've given me the spirit to understand what I should do and how I should live. You can't just go with the flow. The second thing I, I see happening, and I see this happen all the time in our culture around us. You know, culture around us has hijacked the language of light and darkness. And, and they got it from Scripture. That, that This is where it came from. And that's why when you talk about light and darkness and spirituality, Basically, any spiritual guru in any religion, in any little local shop, they'll use language like light and darkness to talk about spirituality. And they, they hijacked it from Scripture. It was God who said, first, let there be light. And then he separated the light from the darkness. That's Genesis 1. So that happened before anything else. Right? But what they've done is they've hijacked it. We see this in everything. Star Wars, literally, they've made a billion-dollar industry around light and darkness. What they've done is they've taken the Christian theme, mingled it with some old paganism, and then sold it to us. <laughs> you like that? <laughs> now, now, here's the issue. Everyone has an understanding of light and darkness, and sometimes we borrow from the world their understanding of light and darkness rather than what Jesus says. I was searching this week, trying to just get a sense, what do other people say about light and darkness? And I came across this blogger. I, from what I understand, she's not some big, famous scholar or theologian or writer. She's just a woman who has a blog. And she writes this, and I think she captures what most people think about light and darkness very well. Her name's Deborah King. She says, can you think of someone who you know who is always positive? This doesn't necessarily mean that they are always happy. Sometimes life throws pretty hefty curveballs. But do you know someone who responds to those curveballs with grace and perspective? Who reacts from a place of love and light? It's these types of people, like Gandhi, Maya Angelou, and Mother Teresa, who face hate and fear with love and forgiveness, who are true beacons of light that inspire the world. And then she says, you have a light inside of you too. Depending on where you are in your spiritual development, that light might be a flickering flame or a giant bonfire, but it's there and it's ready for you to flourish it and let it get brighter and stronger. Now, as I read that, it sounds pretty good, doesn't it? Doesn't it almost sound true? It, you know, as you keep going through her write her blog, I read a couple posts she has. She says, you know, I've gone all over the world. I've talked to shamans. I've, I've talked to faith healers. I've talked to energy healers. I've bought crystals and I've searched spiritual things. And all these things have made me more of a spiritual, more profound person and flickered this flame inside of me. And you can do the same thing as me. How easy it is to believe that we have a light inside of us and all we need to do is be a better person to make that grow into a bright light for the world to see and be some kind of great person. We bring that into the church with us. And when we do that, we forget what Jesus said when he said, I am the light of the world. Because I am the light of the world, no one who comes to me will walk in darkness, right? Whoever follows me will not walk in darkness but have the light of life. That cuts through Deborah King's statement like a knife, right? First thing, Jesus didn't say he is a light. He said he is the light. Make sure you get those words right. And Jesus is not, uh, is not permitting himself to be placed along other spiritual fingers, uh, figures, right? He is not like 
Gandhi. He is not like Muhammad. He is not like Joseph Smith. He is not like other spiritual leaders. He is something in a whole other place. He is the light of the world in and of himself and own category. No one is like him as a light of the world. Secondly, if you do not have Christ, you do not have the Father. Jesus' words, that's what he said. You know neither me nor my Father. If you knew me, you would know my Father also. You see, here, here, here's the human condition. We are not people with flickering lights inside of us that just need to discipline ourselves to be better, more moral, more good, more awe-inspiring people. We have turned from God, and our spiritual condition is that we are in darkness when we're on our own. No matter how bright the light we think we're living in, or no matter what pursuit of spirituality we're going after, if it's not through Christ, it's only darkness, and it's only bringing us into further darkness. The situation is not that we have light inside of us. The situation is that we are in darkness. And the issues with society and the world, when we talk about sin, some of, some of you think sin sounds like such a fuddy-duddy, old-fashioned word. Here's what it means. The problems in society, all the things you get mad at when you listen to the news at night, it's not pinned on anybody else but you and me. This is where it originates from. Our heart is corrupt and wicked. We bring the issues. We're the cause. Not anybody else. So we blame ourselves and then we realize we've brought all the pain in this world. We're the ones at fault and we've gone from God and we're in darkness and we could scratch around trying to find a solution. That's what every other solution is, trying to find some way to fix the darkness. But the reality is light has shined in the darkness. You know, when Jesus was born, think about this. When Jesus was born, a great light shined over his birthplace, didn't it? A star shined. Literally, the night sky was lit up, directing shepherds and directing wise men from the east to find him so the nations would come and know about who he was. And when Jesus was crucified on a cross, what happened? It went dark for hours. Suddenly, the land turned dark as light was killed. You got to understand who Jesus was. Jesus entered into your darkness. He took the darkness upon him, that utter darkness where you can't see in front of your face, that fear of being totally lost, without hope, not having any idea of where you would go. Jesus brought that on himself. The light of the world succumbed to total darkness and then defeated it, giving light to all so that all who would come to him would not have to walk in utter darkness anymore would actually have light to shine down and bring revelation. And here's what the light of the world does. It brings both revelation and comfort. Doesn't light do that? Don't you long for the light of summer, the sun to shine down on you and bring that comfort of feeling just wrapped up in the sun? See, revelation, God's light shows you the brokenness. It shines weakness. It shines bright into our weaknesses. But then it says, I dealt with it on the cross. Feel the comfort of the God who says, my light surrounds you like a hug. It is just all over you. God doesn't leave us wandering in the wilderness. He provided us for us back then, and he's provided for us now through Jesus Christ. When you choose to follow Jesus, he will be the light which you see the entire world through. The entire world. Your eyes will see your days differently because the light of the world be shining. Every moment will be tinted through this new light. Every smile on every face, every breathtaking view you see, every mountain and every river you cross, every tear you cry, every hard moment you go through, every catastrophe you endure, every earthquake, every tsunami, 
Every sickness you encounter and pain you deal with in your family, it will all have the flavor of the light of the world shining down upon you when you choose to follow Jesus. And one day, perhaps not long from now, one day, perhaps tonight, Lord willing, tonight, perhaps not long from now, the light of Christ will come in full. That's what we're looking forward to. That's the hope we wait for in the midst of this dark world. That day when Jesus returns and the sky will be lit up with his glory, like the light of a thousand supernovas shining down upon your soul, the whole city of Jerusalem will shine brighter than the sun when Jesus takes his seat on the throne. His light will overcome every dark shadow. In fact, he will banish darkness itself from his very presence. Until that day, Jesus says, let the light that I have shine upon you and through you that you might serve as a light to the nations. Jesus says, the light I have brings healing to the nations and I've placed it inside of you that you would go and be my mouthpiece, that you would go and be little healers because I'm going before you with my spirit. Jesus says, I am the light of the world. You don't have to walk in darkness anymore. Is that good news? You know, as we close... Here's what I want to do. This is something we don't do that often. I'm going to invite our band to come up. I want a time to reflect. And, and, and Jesus being the light of the world means Jesus shines into your soul if you've chosen to follow Jesus. And if you never take time to actually sit underneath Jesus' powerful presence and actually say, Jesus, search me. Who am I? Where am I off? Then you, you're missing out what it means for Jesus to be the light. Because he reveals that to you and then he comforts you once he reveals it. Because he says, I know who you are. Here's your brokenness. I placed it on the cross. You don't carry it anymore. I meet with a group of guys once a month. We're getting together this Wednesday evening. And when we get together, it's an accountability group. And one of the questions we ask each other is this. Have you done anything, said anything, or thought anything that would bring dishonor to the name of Jesus or to his church? Try that question. Have you done anything, said anything, or thought anything that would bring dishonor to Jesus or to his church?